0: If you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in 1 John today. We're continuing, not just a series, but we're really in some ways continuing the sermon from last week that I just shut down. Uh, it got a little long, so we just put a stop to it. Uh, but, uh, it made sense, right? Where we, where we stopped made sense to stop there. And so we're gonna continue today. Um, we're in the series, uh, this letter from this guy named John also wrote the gospel of John. He's writing to people Jesus has died. He knew Jesus he died, Jesus ascended into heaven and John is now an overseer of a church, right? He's actually probably a group of churches. And he is he is writing at great expense and at great effort this letter. To this church, dealing with a controversy, and it's a controversy that 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 I think that we still struggle with. Maybe not a controversy, but an issue of stability. Right, a church that feels unstable. People have left, and people have people they loved and are close to have left, and so uh, and are not only leaving but actually actively bad mouthing the church and trying to convince other people to leave the church to not to just go to the different church down the street, not the new church with a smoke machine, but to like a abandon Jesus altogether and so he's writing this to a bunch of people who are struggling to find out what is true and what's real and what's worth knowing and what's worth doing how to live I think a lot about uh the things that have shaped me um and I'm not the only one um nostalgia is big right now uh Uh, they've figured out that people my age will probably give you dollar bills if you just hit that nostalgia vein, right? Kids with walkie-talkies on bikes, I'm in. Sign me up, whatever you're selling. Like, I just, because it, like, those are the kind of things that I think shaped me, riding around the neighborhood with my friends, right? That's just, I think now, you you get my age and you lament that about your kids, like, he doesn't ride around on his bike, you know, in the neighborhood with his friends and walkie-talkies, at least not that I know of. And I think that I think about those those moments of, of, the, of the neighborhoods that I grew up in. I, I think of the people in my life that shaped me. And as you as you as you travel further in life, you realize that it's it's the events that shape you too, right? The great successes and the great tragedies shape you. And not only did those shape you, how you handle them and how you respond to them, that shapes you. The people that are just there, that just show up—that all of these things are molding me and shaping me. It it almost feels like I have very little to nothing to do with it, (laughs) right? You think of all the forces that 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 have gone into making us who we are as we grow up, and it's it's an amazing thing to consider. And so, John is writing to people who are struggling with the same thing: like, who am I? Who should I be? How should I live in this world? What am I shaped by? And he frames salvation in this very interesting way. He frames salvation relationally. He says that what it is to be saved, what I grew up being called being saved, to be born again, is to be in relationship with the Father and with the Son. And he says, I'm in that relationship. I know Jesus. By knowing Jesus, I knew the Father. Not only that, you guys, by hearing from me about this Jesus... By trusting him like I trust him, you can be in this relationship too. So he frames salvation as a relationship. And now we begin to wonder, how then do I live? What are the things that go into making me, me now? And John has said already. He said the light has the uh, God is light, and this light's come, and this light does this amazing thing where it reveals. Right? It shows you the path, but it also reveals your heart. And it's pretty easy to know. He says who's in the dark and who's not. This light shows you how to see the world. It shows you how to navigate the world, and it, then it says this is how you now go live in this world. No matter what your background is, no matter how, no matter where you come from, it doesn't matter. If Paul would say slave or free. It doesn't matter if you were a Jew. Or or a Gentile, it doesn't matter, all the things in your past that have shaped you. Now it's this light that guides you. Now it's this light that reveals you. Or not. John sees things very black and white. It's either light and dark, good and evil, uh, love and hate. That's how he explains these things. And so either the light or, or one of these things is shaping you, is how John sees it. Either the light shaping you or the dark is shaping you. And the light. In the world that we live in now, like it matters how we respond to what's going on. So the light shows us how to respond to a world that, to be honest, I don't know if it's just all the news that we have access to or just the shape of the world, but it can feel bleak on days, right? Inflation, right, is killing me. Uh, crime, war, pandemic, uh, sickness that I've had several families tell me that they just feel like sickness won't let their family go in the last 6 8 months like it's just brutal and it feels like it's taking hold and John says this light now reveals your heart teaches you how to respond how to navigate all of these things and this light is God and it's pure so last week we looked at John's comments where he says uh, in chapter 2 he says this he says this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Truth's not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we uh, we may know, be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John says this, there's some element of, even though you're not saved by your works, following the commandments will not save you. In some way, the way that we live should reveal that we know him. Even though the commandments didn't save us, we still now, according to John, keep his commandments. So that's where we ended last week. There are some logical questions that follow right out of that, right? So here are the questions that I have immediately. All right, uh, which commandments do I follow? Because the if if. The following God's commandments are the way that we know that we are in Him. Are the way that we know that we follow Him. If that's the way that you know, which commandments am I supposed to be following? The Bible is so full of them. There's an insane number of them. Not only which ones do I follow. If they don't save, why were they there in the first place? If they won't save, why are they there in the first place? And second, third, if Obeying them wouldn't save me. Why do I need to think about them now? So here's the deal. Uh, Last week I read, again, uh, this frequent allegation that you'll read in uh, different places. Uh, And the allegation uh, levied against Christians is this, that we often pick and choose what the Bible says, which rules to obey and which rules not to obey. That's a pretty frequent uh, thing that you'll read that people will say. Uh, For example, they will say, yes, Christians say this is wrong, but they'll still eat shellfish, which is a rule. It's a commandment. Leviticus 11, 9 and 10 says that you're not supposed to eat anything with scales, anything with fins. You can eat, but anything in the seas and rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters, the living creatures that are in the waters, it's detestable to you. No crawfish bowls for you. That's what it says. Why don't they follow that rule? Or it says in Leviticus 19 that you can't wear two different materials at the same time. You should not keep my statutes. You shouldn't let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If you are wearing a poly cotton a poly-cotton blend, you're violating this commandment. Am I supposed to keep that commandment? What about tattoos? You've got a whole bunch of church planners that are in big trouble. Exodus Leviticus 19 also says you're not supposed to have tattoos. You should not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourself. I am the Lord. So it, it, are we just picking and choosing which rules to follow and which ones not to? So I think that it would be helpful here, a quick review of the commandments. How do we get these rules and how, uh, why we have them at all? Because there's a lot of confusion about this. So I think we're going to just do a real quick refresher on this because it's, it's super important. Most people think uh, uh, commandments, we think of Old Testament stuff, right? Uh, we think uh, probably primarily of the Ten Commandments, right? Top Ten? Actually, right after they hear the Ten Commandments and, and God writes them down, there's a bunch that follow. There's a bunch of commandments that immediately follow that. As a matter of fact, in the next few, the next few books, you get 613 different rules. 613 different laws that people are supposed to follow. And not only that, uh, pretty, good, pretty good chance that those weren't all of them. Like Those are just kind of like, those are a curated few that, that kind of gave you a good idea of what you're supposed to do and what's going on, a sample of, of the laws. 613 different commands. And these commands are given to a specific group of people. They're given to the nation of Israel. God gives them through Moses to the nation of Israel. And it's part of God's plan to save the entire world by creating his own nation. He's going to build up a bunch of people who will represent him in front of the whole world. They will do his work and they're going to draw people to him because they're li- living Living out what he's like. And that was Israel. That was God's nation, these descendants of Abraham. And God has promised that he's going to bless all of the nations through this one nation. So, to build a nation, you need a people. And God, while they were in Egypt, he built them into a people, a bunch of them. Uh, Then you need some land. And God's going to take them out of Egypt. And the promise is, I'm going to take you to the promised land where you will have a nation and you have a land. And then you need something else. You need laws to live by. You need rules. And that's what you see happening at Sinai. God giving this nation the rules that they're going to live by. That's what a nation is. So in these rules and in these nations, if there's commandments and the laws are given to Israel, there's, in, in these commandments, there's really three different kinds of rules that you can find. You could categorize them in three ways. You could do different things. But one of the ways you could you could do it is you could break them down in three different ways. There's laws about worship how to build a tabernacle, things like that, uh, about ceremony and sacrifice. There's a bunch of them. Uh, there are rules about what you could and you couldn't eat, how to purify yourself for worship, what animal to kill and how to kill it for different types of offerings. And, and you could only approach God if you were living in this way, if you were following all of these rules, if you were uh, living eating a certain way, dressing a certain way, not touching certain things. And all of this taught them, taught the people that you can't go into God's presence without purification. You need to be purified to go into God's presence. That was what was going on in all of these rules. But even in the Old Testament, a lot of the writers said you'll see Hosea and Samuel and even some of the psalmists say these things are pointing to something bigger. I, I mean, think about it. If every time you sat down to eat, and you were going to eat something, and it was like, hey, like, we're going to have uh, uh, crawfish, or we're going to have bacon, uh, or, or, or we're not going to have these things. And some one of your kids is like, hey, man, like I was hanging out with one of the kids from the neighboring town, uh, and they have bacon. Have you ever heard of bacon? Like, we don't eat bacon. Why? God told us not to. Why? God told us not to. That seems kind of crazy, but, but it's, a, it's a, not just about worship and about, it's about, thinking about holiness all day every day every meal you sit down to you've prepared in such a way that god that god told you how to do it so you're thinking about god's holiness when you make meals when you dress yourself when you do when, when you plow the field when you handle each uh, handle uh, your your livestock all of these things you are thinking about god's righteousness and god's holiness all day every day these rules were to point beyond just mere rules to something else. Jesus, Jesus <laughs> comes and dies on the cross. When he dies, the veil in this, the tabernacle is torn into, you got spirit poured out on the whole world. And after that, you don't, there's no more following these sacrificial rules anymore. There's no more following these laws anymore because Christ is that ultimate sacrifice. We don't have to kill, go to Jerusalem and kill animals anymore because Christ is now that sacrifice. And these rules don't necessarily separate us from other nations like the old rules do because they needed those rules to say, listen, don't cut yourself, don't get tattoos, don't do things like that. That's what the nations around you are doing to worship their God. Don't get sucked in. Don't let your attention drift. They were laws and rules set up to protect Israel to think about God's holiness to think about who they were to keep them out from uh, from uh, uh, adopting the ways of, of nations that they were around. And we now no longer follow those rules. Jesus comes and he does all kinds of things. He touches people that he shouldn't touch. He heals lepers and people are freaking out. What are you doing? You can't do that. You're unclean now. He eats things that you're not supposed to eat, right? Or does things on the Sabbath that you're not supposed to do. Why? Because things are different now. All of this is fulfilled in him. Now we don't so much think of it as tied to a nation, but we think of it as of salvation tied to Christ himself. So we don't follow those rules anymore in the same way that they did. There's a second type, uh, second type of law, but this first type of law first, it directs your heart. That was the idea of this law. It was to protect them from the terrible gods of the nations around them. It was rules to help Israel love God with their whole heart. It was to teach their entire lives, what they ate, what they wore, how they worked, and to make sure they didn't put anything else in front of God. That was the purpose of those laws. Second type of laws were civil codes. How are we as a nation going to handle relationships with each other? Every nation has to have laws on how we're going to deal with each other. They had rules about how to what to do in the cases of infidelity. They had rules about disobeying parents. They had rules about giving to the poor, uh, moving a landmark, and a lot of other things. But Christianity isn't tied to a single nation anymore. We don't follow Israel's laws. These were civil laws meant to deal with the relationships of people inside a single nation. So those, when Christ's common, Christianity is tied to Christ, we see that it's tied to Christ, and always has been tied to Christ. We don't follow those laws anymore. These were rules about how to love your neighbor well, right? Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. But they also address the heart, not coveting. So all of those laws were meant to teach you and to check people and help them love each other well. But then there's a third set of laws. There's a third type of law, a third category of laws, a third way to look at it, and that's the moral code. Uh, the moral law tells you things like not stealing and not cheating and not, not coveting. These moral laws are a reflection of God's own character. His integrity and his love and his faithfulness. Uh, These laws about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, being generous with our possessions, uh, about social relationships and commitment to your family, those haven't changed. Those don't go away. So, which commandments do you have to follow then? And here's the answer. Here's my answer to you. We have to follow. All of the commandments, nope, let me say it this way. We have to follow the heart behind all of those commandments. Here's what I mean. Uh, The heart behind every single one of those commandments we just talked about is love. The heart behind them is love. Uh, The reason you can't eat this and the reason you can't do this is because I don't want you to have any other gods before me. I want your entire life to be directed at me because that's what's good for you. And here, the laws about how you're going to deal with each other, the civil laws, the heart behind that is, here's how to love your neighbor well. You see this in Jesus, right? When Jesus comes and he begins to teach, he says these types of things. If Moses could have heard Jesus talk about love, I think he would have said, that's it. All of those things I wrote down, that is what we were trying, that's what we were driving at. That is the heart of all of these commandments. These commandments were a signpost, a way of pointing towards what a world full of genuine, lovely, fruitful human beings would look like. That's what this is all about. So Jesus comes... Sorry, along, and the Pharisees one day decide that they're going to test Jesus. And in Matthew twenty two, they, they come up and the Pharisees or the, the the Sadducees who've been silent and they approach Jesus. And one of them, who's a lawyer, asks Jesus this question. He says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says everything in the entire Old Testament is built on this, that you love God with everything that you are and that you love your neighbor as yourself. So what commandment do we keep? We keep the commandment to love that is behind all of those laws, but we don't keep the same civil laws. We don't keep the same laws that they had to keep. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5. He says the entire law is summed up in a single commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So what is the commandment that we keep? What is the point? The heart of behind the entire law always was a world filled with love. That's why the psalmist can uh, write things about the, the law and say things like, uh, that I enjoy the law, that I meditate on the law. Psalm 1 that we read this morning, if you want to live a blessed life, meditate on the law. Which, by the way, always sounded insane to me. Meditating on the law, that how is that life-giving? Here's an, here, to just memorize all the rules I'm supposed to follow, how is that life-giving? But if the idea behind the law is this is what God is like and how to live in a lovely world, then yeah, of course. That's why they can call it a blessing. That's why they can call it a delight, because they teach us what it means to love. The com- point of the commandments were not primarily to check behavior, but to tell the world what God was like and to fill our hearts in the world with God's love. Like, we have different rules in our house, right? Like, if you're a parent or if you grew up in a household where there were rules, uh, you have different kinds of rules, right? There's the kind of command that I make, which is like, knock it off, it's too loud. Be quiet, right? Stop banging on the pots with the things, quit it right? That's a rule that I make up because I can make a rule, right? Is there anything morally wrong with them banging on pots and pans? No, it it just annoys me, right? Like, so I don't want them to do it, so please quit it. So that's a commandment that I make up because it serves me, and I don't, can I just, I just want a moment of peace. Can I have five minutes of peace and quiet, please? So I make a rule. There are other rules in my house or in your house they have different motivation. Do not play in the street. That motivation isn't because it bothers me. That motivation is I don't want you to get hit by a car. <laughs> it's not good for you to play in the street, so don't play in the street. The motivation is different. Or, hey, love your brother or sister. Well, we won't. why? Because you want to shepherd their heart to be that way. I grew up thinking and still fall into the trap of thinking that God's laws are like the first law, just a bunch of lists of things that annoy him. When in reality, the Bible points to all of these laws, all of these rules are like that second and third kind to shepherd our hearts and to protect us. That's the idea of all of these rules now, these rules absolutely become a burden. Jesus says that they worry. He says, you guys are just tying up heavy burdens on these people's back and you're not doing anything to help them. They become a burden because we either realize we can't live up to them, and begin to b- b- just grow in despair, or they become a burden because we think that we can achieve righteousness this way. Instead of looking them, at them as something that tells us what God is like and how we should be, That above everything else, the law is an expression of God's love for us. It's not meant to inhibit us and prevent us from doing things. It's meant to enable us to live the way that God said we should live, to live a fruitful, passionate life. It's not some kind of weird abstract code, but it's like a loving direction from a father who loves. Wants us to live life to maximum fulfillment. So you get to Jesus' teaching and Jesus says, (laughs) says, you guys have heard it said before that you shouldn't kill, shouldn't murder. And I'm telling you, if you have anger in your heart, you've killed, you've murdered. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And the way that I've read this for most of my life was it's even harder than you think to keep the law. What Jesus is saying instead though is you guys have not realized the depth you have underestimated the extent to which God's love, His heart, can permeate your entire life. It's not just to restrain you. God's love will change you. It's not that it's just oh you violated the law. It's even harder. To, it's even harder than you thought to keep the law. I can't not. I can. I can not murder. I can probably pull that off, but not be angry in my heart with someone. How do I pull that off? And so I just feel more beat down. And what he's saying is, your heart needs to be different. God's love, these rules have always pointed you to what God is like and what you should be like in the world, to be this loving force in the world. That's why the laws have always been. So are we free from the law or not? Yes, of course we are. It says so in the Bible, in the New Testament. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and sacrifice animals. We have Jesus. We don't have to follow these burdensome commandments and rules about not wearing uh, two different materials. Uh, we are free from the law. You do not have to depend on the law, complete obedience to it for your salvation. Also, though, we're not free from the command to love the heart behind all of it. This is why John says in this section right here, in chapter seven, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, still in the darkness Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here's what John's saying If you claim to be in the light, but you're not loving your brother, you're mistaken. Because the law, because of all of these things like the, the behind the law, the love behind all of the law, if this is active and working in your life and you've responded to it, it's going to begin to change you. And so if you are actively not loving your brother, John would call that hating. Because if I'm not loving them, I mean, if I'm not forgiving and caring and seeking their flourishing, isn't that kind of hating? If I'm not loving my brother well, then I'm confused about whether or not I am in the light. So we have this old commandment. It's been around for forever, but it's new in its depth. It's new in its beauty. It's new in the way that we see it in Jesus. It's new in the way that Jesus says it's supposed to penetrate everything, every heart, every action, every thought. And he says this, it happens not just in Christ, but it says it's happening in you as well. This is the change. So it shows up in loving our brothers and sisters, John says. It's going to show up that way. So it's a legitimate question when people ask Jesus, hey, uh, the Bible says that you say that I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? It's a legitimate question, right? If that's the law, that's the command, that's the heart, then who is my neighbor is a legitimate thing to ask. And Jesus blows people's minds by saying, "Uh, whoever God puts in your path, Whoever God puts in your way, that's your neighbor. Whoever comes across your path, that's the person who's re- you're responsible for loving well. You're responsible for loving the people I put in your life, which sometimes means our prayers uh, at our worst moments are often, could you put people easier to love in my life, right? Like, these people, can I find another group of people that are e- that's easier for me to get along with? Can I love them well? And God's like, no, these people. These people in front of you, I need you to love them well. Right, but there are people that I get along with a whole lot better. Right, but that's just hanging out and having fun. I want your heart to be shaped to love these people and them to love you. Another way of saying that is community isn't found, it's built. Real community is built through this process of loving one another and having being loved and forgiven super easy. I think community, to have real community has, has got to be an inconvenience. I think we look at this text and it's easy to say, well, listen, I, I don't hate my brothers. I'm probably good, right? I'm not guilty of hating people, but that's not true. I think in the last couple of years, man, it's been really, really amazing to see what some people who claim to be walking in the light say about other, that claim, other people that claim to be walking in the light. how upset we get or how angry we can get with someone who professes to be following christ instead of loving and seeking their flourish flourishing we want to destroy and undermine it's not walking in the light that's the way of darkness that's the way of selfishness the idea that i just need jesus i thought this before in my life i've lived this out before in my life i don't really need the church i just need jesus that really doesn't fly in the face of biblical text the biblical text says the, the Bible says that when God makes you new he gives you a new heart and he also gives you gifts and that the church needs your gifts so by withholding your gifts from a church that needs you you're not loving well But it means if you show up and you do what you can and you stumble and you fall, great, you're loving well. And you can look at your life and say, is that the pattern of my life that I show up and I love well, that I love my brother well. When I'm hurt, I forgive. When I I hurt someone, I'm willing to go to them and, and receive forgiveness. If I'm doing that, that, you can be confident, is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's the work of God to shaping you. That is you keeping the command. You matter. It matters that you show up. And we all fall into this at time and time. Just because you struggle to forgive somebody and you're working it doesn't mean that you need to check your salvation. No, calm down. I do that all the time. We, we, we struggle. It's, it's, it's not that we have these moments where we don't live. It's that, because the light is still killing off patterns of hate in our life, in our hearts. And it's going to be until we meet Jesus face to face. But the trajectory of your heart is leading you either in light or towards darkness, towards loving like God loves or towards hell. Like that is what is happening. There's a certain type of Christian that even wants to withdraw from everybody. I've discovered purity and, and we have the only theology that matters and we're so good at knowing theology but we don't love well. And John says, nope. If there isn't love, then you're missing it. So if you aren't saved by the law, why worry about it at all? What was always true, becomes really, really clear in Jesus, is that salvation is about relationship. It's not some program, it's not a bunch of list of rules that you can follow, it's about a relationship. It's about the love behind those rules. That was always the important thing. And you see it so clearly in Jesus that it's participating in this divine love, knowing what he's like, knowing him, and surrendering to him. If you're walking in the light, God revealed in your heart, has shown you the way, and that is what is transforming you. And that transform, transformation holds us to this commandment. It holds us this commitment to love. You aren't keeping it because it gets you into heaven. You are keeping it because you are being transformed, because you are a new creation, because you now get to be a foretaste of the people of God, to, to the people that God puts in your path of what God is doing and will complete in the world. He is perfecting love. And as Christians, we get to participate now in what God is making new. And we get to be a part of bringing that about in the world. God's love when we forgive one another, when we love well. When we forgive our spouse, when we lovingly correct one another, when we love that difficult coworker, when we spend time with people we'd rather not spend time with because we have a commitment to loving them, that is how it plays out in our life. It's so, so simple, but also really hard because it requires change and it requires sacrifice. You get to bring the future of God's love into the world now in your spouse's life, in your friend's life, in your small group's life, in the difficult coworker's life, in your employee's life, in your children's life, in the life of the serving here. I, I can't get over the power, if I think of the things that have shaped me, and I've been very, very fortunate. The power of the people who just showed up. That we're here that served and loved, and I think they thought they weren't doing anything. But I know now looking back that these men and women that just showed up had a powerful impact in my life. The power of habit, of just being in the rhythm and the discipline of showing up, of reading scripture, of worshiping together, these are actually, believe it or not, when done with the right heart, powerful acts of love powerful acts of discipleship powerful acts of creating discipleship powerful acts of bringing the love that will exist everywhere into the moment into where we are this is the point of the love this is the type of the world that god is god is restoring and that we get to be part of it is incredibly simple it's also incredibly difficult which is a good thing that we don't do it on our own. We do it with each other by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a transformative, supernatural thing that we get to participate in. How beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that John wrote, this commitment. I thank you for the people who have loved me well, for the brothers and the sisters in Christ that you have given me, that have loved me so well, given me glimpses, Tastes, experiences of your love, of what it's like to be in a relationship with you, of pointing others to you. I'm so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful for how they have loved, how they love each other. Because in doing so, it just validates your work in their life, in the life of this church. To see people changed to see people made new, to see people stumble and fall and be picked back up. Mm. Assure us. Assure us of your love. Show us the depth of your love in one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.